You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. My eschatology debate with pre-trib Thomas Ice on the Antichrist, Rapture, and Second Coming. Uh, I am very pleased with how this debate went. In fact, I'm, I, I'm, I, I, I thought it went better than I thought it would actually. So, and my my strategy for the, the debate was, um, well, you know, there's four parts to the debate. There's the the opening, the close, um, opening. Um, Rebuttals, cross examination, and closing, and I had a strategy for each of these. So, <clears throat> uh, first of all, my my uh, my my uh, overall strategy was even before the debate was debate prep. I'm a big uh, uh, believer in if you're going to debate uh, someone, you actually debate two different top two different aspects. You debate a topic, but you also debate a person. You have to understand that it's very strategic. You just don't, you just don't go into a debate and go, oh, he's pre-trib. Well, I've studied pre-trib, therefore I'm prepared. No, you're not, uh, because you have to understand that interpreters or someone who is an exponent of a view holds a particular view, or they can hold uh, idiosyncratic views, interpretations of a view. I'll give you a, a perfect example. Okay, Thomas Ice. Uh, believes that in Second Thessalonians chapter two verse three, where it talks about the apostasy and the man of revelation has to happen before the day of the Lord, he believes the apostasy there is not a religious apostasy, is as if denying the Christian faith. No, he actually, but he believes that apostasy there means uh, the Greek word there means a. Uh, <clears throat> a physical departure or a spatial departure, and he interprets that as the rapture. Now. I know many of you probably were not aware of that. Um, I've been aware of that for many years. In fact, about eight years ago, I uh, lectured on Second Thessalonians and addressed uh, his interpretation there at a Bible prophecy conference. And it, it, the view is not new. It's uh, h- him and uh, another fellow popularized the, 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 uh, the view in the past 20 years. It's been around since um, not even – there was – a couple uh, individuals who promoted it in the around the 1950s, uh, but as far as I know, it was first enunciated in at the end of the 19th century, so over a hundred years old. And uh, it's a very idiosyncratic view. It's uh, uh, honestly, I I think it's a very absurd view. Uh, but I knew that <clears throat> Thomas Ice had arguments for this view, and so I studied up on that and. So I had to see, you have to understand, I had to be aware of his views on that, right? So I'm I'm debating a topic, but I'm also debating someone's interpretation of pre-tribulationism. And so you have to be prepared for both. You don't just debate a topic, you debate that person's interpretation. So uh, I, I read uh, just about everything Thomas Ice has written on this topic uh, from uh, on his website and he doesn't have really a lot of books out. I know, I know, you know, he, he's co-edited uh, books, but he hasn't actually published a lot on specifically this issue in terms of uh, 
extended interpretation essays and and whatnot uh, in book uh, form, uh, and it's more popular type of literature. But I I really focus on a lot of stuff he had articles he had on his website, were, which were very helpful because I could wrap my my mind around his interpretation. And I listened to I don't know I I, I listened to scores of of audio uh, from it. And that's how you prepare for the, for a debate. And now. Whether Thomas Ice did that for me, I'm not sure. I mean, it sounds like he he has listened to some of the the the, the, uh, the biblical prophecy program. Uh, I'm not sure if he's read my entire book. I'm ass- I'm going to assume he did, but anyway. So uh, I was well prepared to to debate. I felt you know really confident uh, in that, and I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did. I think it paid off because I was able to really challenge Thomas Ice. On, uh, I don't. I don't believe he's ever been challenged on this level before, and I think it shows uh, in the in the uh, debate. Yeah, so I was happy with the debate uh, overall, and uh, specifically, my strategy was to uh, give a coherent presentation of the pre-wrath position in the opening. So I took the affirmative. I took the affirmative, and I thought, okay, this is great because once a preturber clicks on play, whether it's video or audio. Immediately, they're going to hear me first, and that's important because may, they may not listen to the entire debate, right? But at least they're going to listen to first of all an unfiltered, pre, a primary pre-wrath source, and that's myself giving a twenty-five-minute coherent presentation of the pre-wrath. So I didn't want to get too technical or anything like that at the opening. I wanted to give a a basic, general. Uh, presentation of pre-wrath in my opening remarks because I knew there's going to be a lot of pre-tribs listening to it. And this may be the only time ever uh, that uh, they will ever hear a presentation of of pre-wrath. So so I had to decide, you know, obviously there's there's different angles in which you can present pre-wrath. I I decided on the, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to use the celestial disturbances and use that motif and compare scripture with scripture, good old-fashioned comparing scripture with scripture and showing the consistency in the pattern, uh, coherency of the pre position via the celestial disturbance motif. And then, of course, the rebuttals. Uh, you know, the rebuttals, I mean, I, I, I could almost predict exactly what Thomas Ice was going to uh, object to the pre-wrath, and and sure enough, uh, he he did. And for example, he brings up the whole, you know, pitting the rapture against the second coming thing. I was totally prepared for that, so I address it uh, in my my rebuttals and and other topics as well. So again, I don't want to, you know, next week is where I'm going to be giving my full commentary. So I don't want to be uh, too long winded here. So uh, and and of course the cross examination was I definitely uh you know was going to um be challenging Dr. Ice on his assertion that apostasy means rapture and you guys can listen to that debate uh, and see uh, how I challenged him on that he did not have an answer he could not produce a single document in all of you know 400 so years of coiny greek literature that taught that um, that shows that apostasy ever means a spatial departure. So I was completely prepared for that, and I'm, I'm really glad I did. I didn't open it up. It wasn't my first cross-examination question. I kind of warmed warmed up with uh, uh, another question on the Blessed Hope uh, in Titus 2. But, and then I moved right into uh, the apostasy is- issue in 2 Thessalonians 2-3 because, you know, again, time 
time was very limited, so uh, it, this debate went super, super fast. Uh, yes, there there were topics I wanted to bring bring up, you know, that just didn't have time. Uh, and you have to understand if it's, a, it's if it's a three hour debate, I have an hour and a half, right? And so I just wanted to highlight what I, the, the most important topics I thought I wanted to highlight, and and I and I accomplished that. Uh, so, so that was for me, that was, uh, really one of the highlights of the debate is where Thomas Ice had to admit that his, th- okay, think about this, right? Second Thessalonians chapter two, right? I mean, this is the passage is the most problematic passage uh, for pre-tribulationists. And this is then Tommy Ice's whole interpretation of second Thessalonians two revolves around this one argument. Uh, and, and so, and so getting him to admit that he doesn't have support for it, uh, that is very telling. Now, of course, he used other arguments for it, but I called him on that, uh, what's called the cognate fallacy or the root fallacy. He, he, he would say, well, the, the verb form means this. It's like, that's actually, that's irrelevant. You don't you don't assume a noun's meaning based on the verb form. Uh, that's that's called the root fallacy or the cognate fallacy. Uh, it's... Um, it's the noun, apostasia. It's a noun. Where in uh, Koine Greek does it ever mean a a uh, a spatial departure? And he could not produce it. So I, I I pressed him on that. I'm really happy I did that. So anyway, okay. I'm again. I'm getting long winded here. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, and and I just felt like uh, coming away from the debate. I really felt that. Uh, I don't know. I I'll be honest. I, I I thought he would challenge me a little. You know, a little bit better in the cross examination. I mean, he brought up questions, which is kind of odd for me. They weren't so much objections against pre rats which is kind of strange. Like, anyway, I'll, I'll talk more about that next week. But um, so, uh, so basically, I, I felt like his argument was, you know, his overall his overall objection to pre rats was, well, pre rats is wrong because pre trib is right. <laughs> you know, and and that's not an argument. Um, so. Yeah, uh, and in my closing remarks, I just kind of recapped how I, I really, I mean, the, the, just the, the essence of pre-tribulationism is it's circular reasoning and it's flawed presuppositions. Um, and, and then I just left, you know, with a word of exhortation for the body of Christ uh, that if, you know, we are the last generation, uh, this this generation is the last generation that that we will face the Antichrist and we have to be spiritually prepared today lest we find ourselves not prepared when when Christ returns. So, well, without uh, further ado, uh, here is the debate. Well, I want to welcome all of you to coming out tonight and hearing this very significant debate. I think you will really enjoy it and you'll have an opportunity to hear quite a bit. And obviously there will be time for interaction as well. This will be a longer discussion and debate, so we will have a couple of breaks. And so I'll explain that in just a few minutes. The topic tonight is the church will face the Antichrist before the rapture. And obviously we have an individual taking the affirmative and one taking the negative. And we'll be looking at that in some detail. We will have opening statements, and these opening statements will last about 25 minutes. I'll be the timekeeper and do our best to try to keep us on track. And so we'll have an opening statement from both of the individuals here for 25 minutes, and then it seemed like a good time to take a break. Uh, When we take a break, let's make it very short because it will be a long evening, but the breaks will allow you to go to the restrooms, which are right out this door. We've unlocked the door, so if you'd like to go out in the prayer garden and walk around, 
that you won't get locked out, which I guess some of you had the experience of just a few minutes ago, but you'll be able to walk around. And I hope you're enjoying this whole Hope Center uh, hospitality because we're really excited about this. Then we will come back and there will be a series of rebuttals, uh, two 15-minute rebuttals, then two 12-minute rebuttals, then two 10-minute rebuttals. And after that time, we'll take another short break. We'll come back and then there will be an opportunity for both of our participants to cross-examine each other. And then there will be time for closing statements. So uh, feel free to sit back and uh, enjoy and uh, get comfortable because this will take a while. And we are excited to have both of our participants here. Uh, speaking first in the affirmative will be Alan Kirshner of Eschatos Ministries, which is dedicated to teaching biblical prophecy about a futurist premillennial pre-wrath perspective. He is the author of Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Return of Christ. He holds a Master's of Arts in Biblical Languages from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He also has done graduate studies in New Testament from Harvard Divinity and is currently working on his Ph.D. in Greek Linguistics from McMaster Divinity College. He lives in New Jersey with his wife, Donna. We also have with us Dr. Tommy Ice. He's the executive director of the Pre-Trib Research Center. He founded the center back in 1994 with Dr. Tim LaHaye to research, teach, and defend the pre-tribulation rapture view and also to deal with many related Bible prophecy topics and doctrines. Dr. Ice has also co-authored about 30 books, writing hundreds of articles, and is a frequent conference speaker. He served as a pastor for 17 years, has a B.A. from Howard Payne University, THM from Dallas Theological Seminary and a PhD from Tyndale Theological Seminary, has done postdoctoral work at the University of Wales in the United Kingdom, lives in Justin, Texas with his wife Janice, and they have three grown children. We'll begin tonight with the affirmation statement and then with the rebuttal that will take place on the church will face the Antichrist before the rapture. How about we welcome Alan? Well, I want to thank uh, Dr. Ice for participating in this debate. Uh, I actually would have uh, loved to debate a different topic tonight, and uh, that is uh, whether Texas or Wisconsin is God's country. Um, I'm originally from Wisconsin. I'm exiled in New Jersey. <clears throat> but I can, I can personally uh, testify that Wisconsin, the land of Wisconsin, is flowing in milk and cheese. So, uh, but we are debating a... <clears throat> A bit of a more serious uh, topic tonight, and that is uh, whether the whether the church is going to face the Antichrist uh, before the rapture. Of course, I'm taking the affirmative, and Dr. Ice is taking uh, the negative. And I think the important the importance and significance of this debate is, uh, I think it's obvious in that if the church is told that we're going to be just, you know, raptured out of here before the Antichrist Great Tribulation, I believe that that sets up the church to be vulnerable for the intense, not just persecution, but the intense deception that will happen from the Antichrist uh, Great Tribulation. And now, Dr. Ice uh, believes that many of the the severe warnings from our Lord, for example, from the Olive Discourse, and many of the warnings from 
the book of Revelation that these are relegated not to the church. These are not, or they're not applicable to the church, but they're relegated to, quote-unquote, tribulation saints. And I could not disagree more. These warnings are for the church. And the, uh, in fact, I, I believe that the, uh, the category, quote-unquote, tribulation saints, that this is a fictitious construct, and it's based on a flawed presupposition of pre-tribulationism. So I'm, tonight I'm taking the, the position of, of pre-wrath, and pre-wrath teaches that, of course, the church is going to face the Antichrist's great tribulation. So at the midpoint, you have the revelation of the Antichrist, and at the revelation of the midpoint, you have the abomination of desolation, the uh, beginning of the persecution of God's people, and then for some undetermined length of time, uh, the, the rapture is going to happen. The great tribulation is going to be cut short. And then you have Christ returning in the sky, and you have the rapture and the resurrection. Uh, we do not believe that the rapture will happen, quote-unquote, three-fourths into the seven-year period. We don't know the day or the hour. It, it will be sometime during the second half of the, of the seven-year period. And then when the rapture and the resurrection does occur, on that very same day, the day of the Lord's judgment will begin. The onset of God's judgment executed upon the wicked. Now, you notice uh, that I, I made a very important biblical distinction, and that is between the, the Antichrist's Great Tribulation and the Day of the Lord's Wrath. I really believe that pre-tribulationism gets it wrong because they do not recognize this biblical distinction. The Antichrist's Great Tribulation will happen first. Uh, that is directed against God's people. Okay, and then you're going to have that's going to be cut short, and then you're going to have the period of the day of the Lord's wrath, which is going to be directed against not God's people. We're uh, the church has promised exemption from God's wrath, the day of the Lord's wrath, but the day of the Lord's wrath is going to be directed against the wicked. Now, what I want to do is uh, in my my opening remarks, I want to focus on a particular uh, line of reasoning that supports my position that the church will face the Antichrist. Of course, other evidence is going to be brought up in the, uh, in the, uh, the rebuttal period and, uh, rebuttal periods and, uh, the cross-examination. But I want to focus right now on a pervasive theme in scripture that links together key prophetic events. And this, this theme or motif, motif is found in both the Old and the New Testament. And, uh, I call it the celestial disturbance event. Uh, of course, this is the, um, the event that the sun will be dark and the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from heaven. And this is going to be a pivotal event that's going to signal the impending return of Jesus for his church, and of course, the wrath of God for the wicked. Uh, and since this is a frequent mo- motif in the Bible, it is incumbent upon us to listen to what it is trying to tell us. So, what we're going to do is, or I'm going to compare Scripture with Scripture, and what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to learn that each of these passages, there's going to be four passages, uh, that, and each of them is going to give us this one piece of information that's going to paint this larger picture, this composite, uh, to show us that the day of the Lord's wrath will happen after the Antichrist's Great Tribulation, and thus the church will face the Antichrist's Great Tribulation. And <clears throat> so the first passage I want to go to is Joel. Uh, Joel, of course, the book of Joel is all about the day of the Lord. And there's a, a, an important passage in Joel. It says in Joel 2.30, I will, pretend, 
I will produce portents both in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sunlight will be turned to darkness and the moon to the, to the color of blood before the day of the Lord comes. That great and terrible day. Now, this, Joel, as I mentioned, Joel provides us with this first piece of information. And it, this is a cluster of celestial disturbances. It's not, it's not piecemeal, you know, uh, but it's happening. It's going to happen in a cluster. And it's going to happen before the day of the Lord. You'll notice that Joel's text, it doesn't say that it's going to happen during the day of the Lord or after the day of the Lord, but before the day of the Lord. In other words, this is going to be a discernible celestial event portending the eschatological wrath of God. So, in, in other words, when, when this happens, you know, we're not going to be like, you know, hmm, you know, is this the day of the Lord? No. No, and we're not going to have to consult, you know, go to the homepage of NASA's homepage to wonder, you know, when this is going to happen. Uh, no, this is going to be, it's going to be unmistakable when it happens. Now, of course, it is true that there's going to be different sorts of heavenly disturbances that will happen during the day of the Lord's wrath, as the, the trumpet and the bow judgments uh, do witness to certain celestial types of disturbances. But this cluster of disturbances Celestial bodies will happen before the day of the Lord's wrath. It will be unprecedented, so the world will not mistake it. Uh, I, I find it quite fascinating that Peter cites this text in Acts 2. And you'll notice that when Peter cites this text, he, there's two prophetic events that happen. There's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, and, then, and then he cites the celestial disturbance event. Well, we know that formally, if you want to call it formally, that the church age began with Pentecost, right? Well, I believe that the church age will be completed at the celestial disturbances. In other words, Peter's citation has the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then you have the celestial disturbance citation. I think they're bookends to the church age. One is going to begin the church age, and one is going to complete the church age. So that's the first piece of information is... Uh, the Joel is giving us that it's going to happen. The celestial disturbance is going to happen before the day of the Lord. Okay, moving on to our second piece of information, Matthew 24, 29. In his lengthy end-time end discourse on the Mount of Olives, Jesus in Matthew 24, 29, draws, actually he draws from Joel's passage, citing the celestial disturbance event. But immediately, he says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. So while Joe explicitly states that the celestial disturbance will happen before the day of the Lord, Jesus adds a second piece of information about this event. Jesus says it's going to happen immediately after the tribulation of those days. What days? Well... It's the days of the Great Tribulation where, where Antichrist will persecute the church and a remnant of, of Israel. In fact, we, if you go back a few verses in verse 21 and 22, it says, For then there will be great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Verse 22, unless those days have been cut short, no life will be, have been saved. I believe that's in the context of believing life. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So it's a day, he's referring back to the, the, the Great Tribulation. Uh, and by the way, in, in, in the context of the celestial disturbance, Jesus gives the sign of his coming. The sign of the Greek term is parousia. It's in verse 29. For just as the lightning comes from the east 
uh, and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man arriving on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. We're going to see after a while, I believe that the, the, the gathering of the elector is the rapture of God's people. So let me sum up the first two pieces of information. Joel says it's going to happen before the day of the Lord. And Jesus, in his Olivet Discourse, says it's going to happen after the great tribulation. In other words, before the celestial disturbance event, the Antichrist would go after God's people during the Great Tribulation. Then after the celestial disturbance event, God would go after Antichrist and his people during the day of the Lord. In fact, I, I want to actually repeat that again. Before the celestial disturbance event, the Antichrist will go after God's people during the Great Tribulation, then after the celestial disturbance, God would go after Antichrist and his people during the day of the Lord. There's a beautiful consistency here between Joel and the Olive Discourse. Uh, another account of the Olive, Olive Discourse, moving to our third piece of information, and our third passage is Luke 21, 25 to 28. Luke says, And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and stars. Sound familiar? It says, And the... The, uh, and on the earth, nations will be in distress, anxious over the roaring of the sea and the surging waves. People will be fainting from fear from the expectation of what is coming on the world. For the Notice that the wicked are ex, uh, fainting in fear of what is coming on the world, not what has already happened before the celestial disturbances, because they know God's judgment is coming. And it says, Then they will see the Son of Man arriving in the cloud with power and great glory. But when these events... When these, when these things begin to happen, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So, what is Luke's piece of information? Well, he highlights that there's going to be a polar response, a pol polar responses from the celestial disturbance event from two types of people, the wicked and the righteous. Uh, and actually, Matthew has um, an abbreviated account as well, affecting two groups of people. But here, Luke is very explicit. He elaborates. He says the ungodly will be in distress, anxious, fainting from fear, and from the expectation of what is coming on the world. God's people, however, which I believe it is the church at this time, before Christ's return, however, are exhorted to stand up and raise your heads because the redemption is drawing near. By the way, Luke also adds a, a, a terrestrial element, the, uh, which I think is actually maybe tsunami language, about talking about earthquakes and the waves and all that. So it actually could be called the celestial terrestrial uh, disturbance. So up to this point, when we're tracing, we're doing good comparing Scripture with Scripture and tracing this event, it gives us three pieces of information so far. The celestial disturbance happens before the day of the Lord, and then it's going to happen after the Great Tribulation. And when it does happen, it's going to produce two polar responses. No one's going to be sitting on the fence on this one. So... Moving on to our fourth and final passage. The fourth passage gives us a fourth piece of information, and that is the sixth seal 
in the book of Revelation depicts the celestial disturbance event. Now, of course, before we examine the sixth seal, we need to back up a little bit and give some information about this. And we need to look at the first five seals. So there's seven seals on a scroll in the book of Revelation. And when we examine the seals, we see that they are conditions before God's wrath happens. They're not God's wrath in and of themselves. They're they're conditions that must happen before the scroll is open. That's the whole point of the scroll. When the scroll is open, then you have the with the final seal, the breaking of the seventh seal, then you have the unleashing of the contents of God's wrath, and that is the trumpet and the bowl of judgments. So the seals are not God's wrath. They are conditions that must be met before the Lord's, the day of the Lord's wrath. So the, when you examine the four seals, we, of course we don't have time to go through each of the four seals. Uh, but when you examine them, you'll see that they're, they're natural events. Now, of course, you know, don't get me wrong. Obviously, God has worked through natural events to express his wrath. I, I'm not uh, denying that. But it's very interesting. There's a striking contrast when you examine the seals, particularly the first five seals. It's, it's in contrast to the supernatural, uh, the supernatural events that will occur in the trumpet and the, and the bold judgments. And now I believe that the, the church is going to experience these seals. Of course, this is nothing new. The church has experienced these events before, the conquering wars, famine, death. But I, I do believe that the four seals will be much larger in, in scope. So, but it's the, it's the fifth and the sixth and the seventh seal is the most important for our discussion. The fifth seal is important for our debate tonight because, and I'm sure we're, this might be brought up in the rebuttal period as well, but because it's very problematic for the pre-tribulational position. The fifth seal contradicts their claim that the seals are God's wrath because pre-tribulationism says that the seals are God's wrath. But what is the fifth seal? I mean, first of all, all pre-tribulationists rightly, I mean, we, the pre-wrath can agree with the pre-trib view that that the church will be exempted from the day of the Lord's wrath. We will be raptured before the day of the Lord's wrath. That is what we can agree on. The question, of course, is the timing of the, uh, when does the day of the Lord begin? And yet, when we look at the, the fifth seal, it explicitly depicts blood-bought martyrs. So, to assume that this is, uh, you know, to, to argue that this is the wrath of God, I think it, 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 uh, it contradicts Scripture. I mean, if you, if you make the fifth seal God's wrath, you have God executing wrath against his own redeemed people. Because the fifth seal is not, it's not about God's wrath. Why is it not about God's wrath? Because God's wrath has not happened. It will happen. It will formally be pronounced at the breaking of the seventh seal. When the scroll is opened. So when you examine the fifth seal, you see that the martyrs themselves recognize that their plight is not a result of God's wrath. In fact, they view it as still in the future. Uh, verse 9, listen to this. Now, when the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altars of, uh, under the um, <clears throat> altar, the souls of those who have been violently killed because of God's wrath. No, it doesn't say that. It says they were killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony they had given. And I believe that's because of, that will occur during the, the Antichrist Great Tribulation. But notice verse 10. 
That's not the only thing it says. Verse 10 shows that the martyrs themselves recognize that their plight is not because of the wrath of God. It says, they cried out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign master, holy and true, before you judge those who live on the earth and avenge your blood? So they themselves, he says, yeah, before you judge, they they view the, the wrath still in the future. And then, there's more. Verse 11, they're given a divine answer. And you'll notice in verse 11, the divine answer is not, no, 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 you martyrs got it wrong. Uh, you are here because, you know, of the result of God's wrath. No, that's not the divine answer. The divine answer is, each of them was given a long white robe. They're given a white robe. They're not wearing it yet. They will be wearing it. And they were told to rest a little bit longer until the full number was reached of both their fellow servants and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. The divine answer is, you're right. Don't worry. You know, vindication is coming. So it, ex- it explicitly states that the result of their being killed is, is due to not God, but because of the word of God and because of the testimony they had given. And I believe these martyr saints are part of the church that will be present during the Antichrist Great Tribulation. These, believer, these believers who have not been killed by the wrath of God because, again, the day of the Lord's wrath has not begun. In fact, the fifth seal is not only not the wrath, it cannot be the wrath unless God breaks his, breaks his promise, which he will not. Now we turn to the sixth seal. The function of the sixth seal depicts the celestial disturbance among the sun, moon, and stars. It's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a lengthy text here, and I don't have time to read it all, but it is, again, reiterating the celestial disturbance event. And what I want to highlight, though, is, is that in being consistent with Luke, the wicked are responding to it. In fact, it says that the wicked, in response to the celestial disturbances, and then there's a great earthquake as well, it says the kings of the earth, very important people, generals, rich, powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the, wrath or from the face of the one who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of the wrath has come and who is able to withstand it? So here, the immediate context is that the, the wicked, they recognize the pending wrath of God. And so the, um, and again, as I mentioned, this is consistent uh, with the account of the celestial disturbances from, uh, from Luke in which the wicked is going to be in distress. So, okay, we have six seals, right? So the first seal is open, the second seal is open, the third seal is open, the fourth seal is open, the fifth seal is open, the sixth seal is open, then... Before the seventh seal is opened, there's a conspicuous break in the narrative. There are two groups of people who have just been delivered. There's 144,000 Jews who are sealed and protected on earth. And then there's this great multitude, innumerable multitude, you can't count it. And they appeared in heaven and they're wearing white robes. That's a symbolic, of course, of the resurrection. And it's, it's noteworthy that the text says that they have come out of the great tribulation. Very consistent with, with, all of, with the Olivet Discourse. And we should, it should be consistent, right? Because Olivet Discourse is given by Jesus, and the book of uh, Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And speaking of uh, Jesus' teaching, he says, and I'll just mention that here, he says, yeah, in Matthew 29, or 24, 29, he says, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of, uh, of heaven to the other. So just two groups of people being delivered, and before the seventh seal is opened, two groups are delivered, and, and I believe the, the innumerable multitude is the raptured people of God. And again, why are they being delivered at this point? Because when the seventh seal is open, the scroll is open, and the wrath of God will begin. And the account of the opening of the seventh seal itself indicates that something ominous is about to happen. In Revelation 8, verse 1 to 2, it says, Now when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And it says, I saw seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets. Uh, were given to them. So before the first trumpet is sounded, there's a solemn silence in heaven. It's a silent overture. And I believe it indicates the awesomeness of what is about to happen, and that is the day of the Lord. And this makes sense from the pre-wrath perspective, uh, because... You have the resurrection and rapture of God's just happened, and now you have the day of the Lord's wrath is going to be executed. And so, let me just conclude here by saying that given all of this, there's a consistency here between Jesus' teaching and the, uh, the book of Revelation. And what I, I, this is what I like to say about the seals. I like to say they, they, they function, again, they function as conditions, and there's a progression. That's the key. There's a progression to God's wrath. And I like to say that the, the fifth seal promises wrath. The sixth seal portends wrath. An interlude in Revelation 7 protects from wrath. And the seventh seal pronounces wrath. Shalom, y'all. Welcome to the great Lone Star State, the other being Israel, God's promised land. And it's great having Kirby as our moderator. 1988, Dave Hunt and I had a debate that was run over y'all's network with the Reconstructionist. And so anybody 27 or younger were not alive when we had that debate. <laughs> so Welcome. Uh, I'm going to, of course, presenting the pre-tribulational rapture view, which means that the believers and the church will not be in the tribula- any part of the 70th week of Daniel, nor see the Antichrist. And here's a basic graphic there. Uh, you don't have to do anything to qualify for the rapture. It's part of the package deal you get when you become a believer. And here's Alan's view, very complicated. And uh, both the pre-trib and pre-wrath view, which, by the way, our view is pre-wrath as well, all other rapture views are related to the timing of the rapture. And uh, I guess they couldn't come up with a timing view that fit their view, so they came up with pre-wrath, which is also true of the pre-trib view as well. And uh, the 70th week of Daniel is a seven-year period often known as a tribulation. These are things we have in common. God will allow the Antichrist to rule during the tribulation. 
and the church will be removed before God's wrath begins. So the question is, when does it begin? And uh, pre-tribulationists believe that God's wrath extends throughout the entire seven-year period, thus the church is removed before the tribulation via the rapture. So the pre-wrath view believes that God's wrath comes toward the end of the tribulation, and the church will be present until this point and subject to the reign of the Antichrist. The key question that must be answered is, when during the tribulation does the wrath of God begin? To answer this question, we will be looking at why the New Testament teaches pre-tribulationalism, thus ensuring that the church will not face the Antichrist. So we start with a definition of what is the rapture. Well, the rapture is the translation of living believers to heaven without experiencing death in a moment of time. Now, in conjunction with that, uh, believers from the church age will be resurrected. But the rapture refers to living folks being taken up or caught up or snatched up, as First Thessalonians 4 says, to heaven. Jesus introduces a rapture, and this is very important. He introduces it the night before he was killed, a few days after he had already taught the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And he, he, of course, was answering Peter's question of, why are you going away? I'd like to go with you, etc. And he says, you can't go where I'm going. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. In other words, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you or Since it's active, it probably should better be taken, Paralambano here, as take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So this is part of what is called the upper room discourse. It's only found in John's gospel. There's a 93% difference between John's gospel and the three synoptics. And uh, what's significant is the... Upper Room Discourse is John 13 through 16, followed by the high priestly pair of John 17. And two-thirds of the way through John 13, Judas leaves the room and Christ starts talking to them. And everything he talks about from then on through chapter 16 relates to brand new doctrine that the church is going to be built upon. And that is why three times in the Upper Room Discourse he repeats this These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Three times he told his apostles that he's introducing them, in essence, to church-age truth. Later, he's going to build upon that through the mystery that he introduces, especially through the Apostle Paul. And that's what much of the New Testament was, was him answering or fulfilling what he said he would do here. So this means that the rapture is a brand new doctrine not taught in the Old Testament. In fact, a scholar named J.B. Smith, a Mennonite brethren back in the 60s in his commentary on Revelation, did a study of all second coming passages and rapture passages. And he found that there is a thought for thought progression that lines up exactly in John 14, 1 through 3, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, which, of course, is the uh, passage that 
where Paul talks about the rapture. And you see that this is an illustration of the fulfillment of Christ's statements in the Upper Room Discourse that he would expand upon what he was teaching them and introducing them to in the Upper Room Discourse. And, of course, the rapture of the church is one of those very things that he said he would introduce them. So that's important to know that this is a brand-new doctrine that's part of what we could call the mystery uh, teaching for the church. And when we go to 1 Thessalonians, that passage that expands upon what Jesus introduced, we see here uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, Paul talking about the fact of the rapture. I'm not saying he talked about the timing of the rapture here. But he, he expanded upon the fact of the rapture. And what's interesting is Galatians was the first book that Paul wrote uh, right before the Jerusalem Council. And then it was followed by 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So right off the bat... In Paul's ministry, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, the mystery truths or the eschatology, especially uh, relating to the church that was unique, was introduced in First and Second Thessalonians, where those epistles are dominated by the church's eschatology. And he says he doesn't want them to be uninformed. Subjunctive mood here: stop being uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Asleep is a term for. Uh, Christian death, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe, first class, if it's true from the writer's perspective, that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in or by Jesus. Now, bring with him is important because apparently, uh, if you read the white spaces in between pages, they were wondering if they would see their loved ones again. Uh, Because some were dying, apparently they thought Christ would return so soon, and that's why he's saying he's going to bring those who have died with him when he comes back uh, by means of Jesus. For this we say to you by word of the Lord. Now, this either refers, this phrase by the word of the Lord, either refers back to the upper room discourse, but possibly it also uh, rather refers to Paul's visit in heaven in Second. For, uh, Corinthians chapter 12, where twice the Greek word herpazo, he was raptured up into heaven, kind of like Isaiah. And we know from Galatians that he said that no one taught him the gospel. He learned it directly from Christ himself. And so it's very possible that the doctrine of the rapture that he's teaching here was taught him in that visit, whether in body or out of body, to heaven, and he receives it directly from the Lord. But it came directly by the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, so the rapture event, which is separate from the second coming, is a coming, but it's not a second coming to the earth. That doesn't happen until seven years, at least seven years later, when just as Christ walked the dusty shores of Galilee and he left, he's going to come back at the second coming and touch the Mount of Olives, as we learned in Zechariah 14. Shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, Dr. LaHaye likes to say the reason why the dead are going to have a head start is they're six foot under. I don't know if that's true, but nevertheless, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. I think that's just passing down the chain of command. For those of you that used to be in the military, the commander through the lieutenants, and then the general command given through the trumpet here, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Any Episcopalians here? Okay, you're going to be the first to go. And um, in other words, this is a reference to all believers. And this is a technical term used about 83 times in Paul and Peter's writings uh, to refer to the church. 
So church-age believers are going to be taken to be with Christ. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. And here's the Greek word herpodzo. That was translated by Jerome in the late 300s with the Latin word rapture or rapio. And it came into modern parlance during the 1600s when people from different countries came together and they all spoke different languages and they used Latin and developed all these theological terms. And if you, I have about 125 commentaries on First Thessalonians and everybody, regardless of their view, uses that word because a lot of people say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. It is in the Latin Bible, but the concept certainly is here as well. And we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So when you combine that with uh, going back to the Father's house, the rapture is Christ meeting us uh, in the atmosphere and taking us back to the Father's house. And it's important. Uh, for example, what Alan just presented is very common uh, for people who don't take into account the mystery religion, the new revelation that is given to the church that's found in, especially in Paul's epistles. And they develop oftentimes a eschatological system that does not factor in the impact of this new teaching or doctrine there. So a mystery in the Bible is not something that is mysterious or hard to figure out. A mystery refers to a new revelation about something in God's plan. And we see this in Daniel as God used him to reveal aspects of his plan. In other words, he was the revealer of mysteries, the text says. New revelation about uh, God's plan for history. And we see this in the New Testament in relation to the introduction of new truth related to Christ and the church. And so since the rapture is a new doctrine, it's said to be a mystery. Uh, and of this church, Paul says in Colossians 1, just one of three major passages that talk about this, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested, my brought to light to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches and the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so we see this idea of the church being a hidden doctrine and the program of God for the church is not revealed until we get to Christ and then his uh, apostles. And we see that it is specifically called a mystery in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, in verse 50, he says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, no church-age believer is going to make it into the millennium except in a resurrection body. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Uh, one nursery had this a slogan uh, above their nursery beds. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's pretty fast. And as a result, uh, here he's focusing on what's going to happen, the transition. In other words, the rapture is basically being caught up to heaven and getting your resurrection body without dying. It's pretty good. At the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will rise imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immorality. Not immorality. 
And so we see the flow of God's plan in Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. It says, Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles and to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration, or as the King James says, dispensation of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. See, this is not plan B, as some have wrongly said of us. I do not know anybody who has our viewpoint that believes God has. God doesn't have plan Bs. It was always part of his plan, his only plan. It was just hidden from revelation until we get to the New Testament here and the epistles specifically. Uh, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things in order that the manifold, and that's a hapax legomena, as we say in Greek. It's a word only used here in the entire New Testament. And it's a, the idea of a many-sided object. God's plan has multiple dimensions to it. Isn't it interesting he mentions that here? And people talk about, well, there's only one people of God. There's only one way of salvation. But if a novelist can have multiple themes that they weave throughout a novel and then bring it all together in the end, don't you think God's quite capable of doing something similar? He's made history very interesting. And therefore, he has Israel, a plan for Israel and a plan for the church and a plan for uh, the, the church, which includes Jew and Gentiles, co-equal in Christ during this current age. In order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus. There was this always part of his plan. But he just now is revealing it because the church had been born. So in a sense, when you look at the development of the Bible, you have God's plan for Israel laid out. And I would argue as early as Deuteronomy chapter 4, he lays out their future plan prophetically, expands upon it a lot in Deuteronomy as well. And then he reveals the church on top of that and interacts with uh, Israel and the church. And so... These are two tracks, and the purpose for the church is during the age in which Israel is in disbelief and diaspora, the, the godly remnant, of course, who believe in the Messiah are part of the church, but he's using this different instrument, the church, to spread the gospel, and then when that is finished, he's going to take us out because he's going to deal with Israel during the 70th week of Daniel. It makes sense. And so the church will be removed at that point. And so the, rap, the purpose theologically for the rapture is to end the church age. Recognize anybody there? Well, other than Jesus. Uh, and so the rapture ends the church age so that God can do what? Complete his unfinished business, the 70th week of Daniel, that 70th week of Daniel that we know as the tribulation period uh, that is... Uh, expanded upon in the Olivet Discourse, for example, in the New Testament and all throughout the Old Testament. And so I know Alan likes to show similarities between what he thinks the rapture in First Thessalonians and other, like First Thessalonians 5 and all this. I agree with a lot of the stuff on First Thessalonians 5 and Matthew 24, for example. But there are similarities, but there are even more differences. And uh, if a person were describing something that has leaves, form and substance, color, plant, roots, branches, 
Well, uh, is that a bush or a tree? See, and only the main difference between a bush and a tree is a trunk, but it's an important difference. And so differences are just as important as similarities. And different contexts give different connotations to a passage. So that similar does not mean same in a passage. And context is the deciding factor. You have to go with the context. And so distinguishing traits, for example, between the revelation of Christ from the rescue of Christ, the rapture versus the second coming, uh, there are angels present in both, but an archangel is present at the second coming, or the rapture, rather. And the gathering of the elect by angels from the diaspora, referring to Israel, as I'll show later. Uh, the gathering together of the church in the air with Christ uh, is the rapture. The basis, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ in the rapture. The basis is the messianic mission of power and glory in the second coming. There's watchfulness. Uh, because Israel was not watchful at the first coming. In fact, Luke makes a big deal out of that. You only have, uh, what was her name, uh, Anna watching for the Messiah. See? And she saw, knew that he was coming, but the others were not. And then an urgency regarding his coming. In other words, he could come at any moment. It, uh, the rapture is a rescue by Christ. Uh, the second coming is judgment. There's judgment passages. The apocalyptic son of man comes at the second coming, but Christ is the deliverer at the rapture. And when I first became director of the Preacher Research Center, I sat down and made a list of passages I believed refer to the rapture, either referred to the rapture or describe the rapture. And I have them over here on one side. And then I took some of the passages, because there's even more passages that talk about the second coming. Only rapture passages are found in the New Testament. Second coming passages are found in the Old Testament as well as the New. And I, you know, went and looked at the differences between these passages. And you can see by the graphic that the rapture is the meeting Christ up in the air. Second coming is where Christ, the bride, makes herself ready in Revelation 19 and he returns to planet Earth, etc. And so those are qualitatively two different events. And the more you see the differences, the more you're going to be uh, pre-trib. And so you have the translation of all believers at the rapture, but there's no translation at the second coming. There's a translated saints go to heaven, but translated saints return to the earth, as Revelation 19 makes clear, uh, at the second coming. The earth, there's no judgment language in rapture passages. The earth is judged and righteousness is established in second coming passages. The rapture is imminent, could happen at any moment. It's signless. That's why you'll always be ready. And the second coming follows definite predicted signs, including the tribulation. The rapture is not predicted in the Old Testament, but the second coming is predicted often in the Old Testament. Raptures for believers only. And uh, the second coming affects all mankind. Every eye will see him, as we say. It's before the day of wrath or the tribulation. It concludes the day of wrath after the tribulation of those days, Matthew 24, 29. There's no reference to Satan at all in the rapture, but Satan's bound at the second coming. We see Christ comes for his own, but he comes with his own at the second coming. Christ comes in the air. Christ comes to the earth at the second coming. Christ claims his bride. He comes with his bride. At the second coming, only his own will see him, but every eye will see him at the second coming. The tribulation follows the rapture, but the millennial kingdom follows the second coming. 
And so we see the doctrine of imminence. It's an event that could but not necessarily take place at any moment. Soon is not the same as imminent. So an imminent event could happen soon or it may not occur for over 2,000 years. So no prophetic event must take place before an imminent event could happen. The rapture is imminent while the second coming is not. And you see these passages in the New Testament about waiting eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Maranatha means our Lord come, an Aramaic term, but it has a sense of expectancy implied in it as well. For our citizenship is in heaven, for whom we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice we're not looking for the Antichrist, which if his view is correct, that would precede the coming of Christ. Uh, the Lord is near, in case, at hand. Uh, we sit, so it means it's the next event. We are waiting for his son from heaven in 1 Thessalonians. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, James 5, 9, 7, be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door, meaning it's the next event. And we see 1 Peter 1, 13, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, your focus is on Christ himself. As Peter says, whom we have not loved, seen we love. That's why you want him to come back waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And so we see that the purpose of the tribulation is for Israel. Uh, it's a time of preparation for Israel's restoration and conversion. It's called the time of Jacob's tribulation or trouble. The church is currently experiencing tribulations in the world, as Christ said, but uh, she will not experience the tribulation. And the purpose for the church differs from Israel. The church is a mystery of Jews and Gentiles who are co in a co-equal body. The church is not appointed to wrath. And Alan would agree with me on this. Much more than we having now been justified by his blood will be saved from the wrath to come. And uh, who delivered Christ in 1 Thessalonians 9 through 10 says, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And uh, God has not destined us for wrath, but the attaining of salvation and then the church is promised delivered from the hour or the time of testing. And notice in Revelation 3, 10 and 11, it says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. In other words, during the church age, I will keep you from the hour or time period of testing. And look at this. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. See, the purpose is to test earth dwellers, not church age believers. And that's clearly reiterated throughout the book of Revelation as the entire 70th week of Daniel. And then he adds, I am coming quickly. Obviously, the vehicle for them not going through the tribulation is that. Well, so we see that the Bible has plenty of evidence in the New Testament for pre-tribulationism. Thus, uh, Christians or the church will not face the Antichrist.